people who have been hearing the sayings of Jesus since we were little infants, sometimes we think, yep, yeah, I've heard this one. I'm pretty sure I've, I've got this one figured out. We've, we've arrived. We're mature Christians. We know. We know that our life is in Christ. We know that we have absolutely nothing in ourselves to offer God. Christ is our salvation. Christ fills us up. And yes, all of these things are true. And if we've grown up in the church, like a lot of us have, we know these things very well. But if we slow down and really hear what God is teaching us, we learn that there is such a richness to every word uttered by the Lord Jesus Christ. If we slow down and really think about what he's teaching us here, what he's calling us to do today, we become so aware, again, of how badly we need Jesus Christ. We discover again how awesome it is that we are able to be partakers of Christ. We discover again how necessary it is that we continue to grow in him. Not just to arrive at a state of being forgiven, arriving at a state where now we are secure and now we expect what's coming, we expect eternal life, but even further, how our life changes, how our life is able to flourish when we believe in Jesus Christ. How does this saying of Jesus change what you do in the coming week? How do you live now that you have access to living water, now that you have taken a drink, now that your life has been saved. The word of God comes to us this morning in this way. At the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus offers life-giving water. And we'll see three aspects. First, we'll see that this water quenches thirst. We'll see, secondly, that this water flows from the believer and third, that this water is the Spirit of Christ. So first, this water quenches thirst. Jesus very loudly puts forth this call while he's at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. He does this with a lot of urgency. He says this here, at this time and at this place. He stood up in front of everybody and he proclaimed it. And if we understand how dangerous it was, humanly speaking, for him to do this, well then it's clear that this particular proclamation of salvation, it was a matter of life and death for his hearers. If we look back at the very beginning of our chapter, beginning of chapter 1, we see that Jesus had decided earlier that he wasn't going to go to this feast. He wasn't going to go. In verse 1, we read that he didn't want to go to Judea because the leaders were looking for a way to kill him. And apparently this was a well-known fact. It was surprising to a lot of people that he had the guts to show up and teach. People thought, you know, what is he doing teaching here in the temple, in front of everybody, in full view? Isn't this 
whom they're trying to kill. Yet here he is in public. Does this mean that the leaders have finally decided that he's the Messiah? Is that, is that why they're letting him teach? Well, no. They still wanted to kill him. But for some reason, Jesus changed his mind about going to the feast. We know that Jesus isn't fickle. He's not wishy-washy. He must have been prompted by his father somehow, and he went in obedience to his father's will. So here he is teaching at the festival, and as he's doing this, he's accelerating his course toward the cross by saying these things about himself in public. So now why does he say what he does here at this feast? <clears throat> Why is he speaking about water and thirst here? Well, the Feast of Tabernacles has a lot to do with water. It was a feast where they commemorated especially God's provision for Israel while Israel was in the desert for those 40 years. They remembered and they celebrated how in the middle of a barren wasteland, God provided manna for them to eat, but especially... This was really pictured at the feast. They remembered, they commemorated how God miraculously provided water for them to drink when there was no water around. The people of Israel, while they traveled, they were so often convinced that they were going to die in the desert. But the Lord proved his, his goodness he proved his purpose for them by miraculously and lovingly giving them food and water where there was no food and water. And this was commemorated at the Feast of Tabernacles. So even today, if you go to a city that has a very large Jewish population, places like New York or, or Toronto, and you look on the sides of skyscrapers at the, at the end of September... You can see on the balconies, little tents pitched. Jewish people are still commemorating the Feast of Tabernacles. And so they live and sleep out there on their balconies all week. The same way as in our text. For that week of the feast, the people came to Jerusalem and they built little huts. And they lived in those huts the same way their forefathers did for 40 years in the desert. And every day of the feast, this is really important, every day of the feast, a pitcher of water was filled up at the pool of Siloam, and then it was carried in a grand procession up to the temple, and it was poured out, that water was poured out at the altar while a choir sang. Beautiful ceremony. This pouring out of water, it reminded God's people of what he did for them. He turned bitter waters sweet so that they could drink it. And twice, God made water flow out of a rock for them to drink. And this, this was the point. It was impossible for Israel to survive in the desert unless God kept them alive. It was impossible. But God gave them life 
giving water. And this is what was on the hearts of the people at that feast. Remember how our God gives water in dry places. And it's here, it's here that Jesus proclaims, if you are thirsty, come to me. Come to me. Jesus had said something similar to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, John chapter 4. Whoever drinks the water that I give will never be thirsty again. Jesus teaches that he is the true bread from heaven. And here he teaches that he is the water of life. At this feast, at this feast, people are looking back. They're remembering the way that God saved their lives with water. And now Jesus is saying, look at me. Look at me. God's miracle of water for Israel in the desert, it was a tool, a tool that taught God's people about salvation in Christ. And now Jesus is declaring to them that he is the fulfillment of this feast. Hundreds of years celebrating this feast, this feast is getting people ready for Jesus. Jesus Christ is what water from the rock was really all about. Paul teaches this in 1 Corinthians 10. When Israel ate manna and drank water in the desert, they were eating and drinking spiritual food and drink. We read in 1 Corinthians 10, they all drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. When they drank from the rock in the desert, they were enjoying communion with God, they were experiencing salvation and life from God that would be secured in Christ. Now here he is. Now he's proclaiming, I am the rock that quenches your thirst. So what does all this mean for us? Well, we could try to come up with an analogy for how to be sustained in this life, but God already gave the perfect metaphor here with this. Water in the desert. Just as it was impossible for Israel to survive in the desert unless God gave the miracle of water, in exactly the same way, we need water from God. We need life from God. Or we cannot survive. We won't survive. We cannot survive if we don't partake, if we don't drink the gifts of Jesus Christ. And that's because this world is broken and dying. People are infected with death. We are all going to die. Nobody escapes death if they seek life in this world. Think again about what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. Whoever drinks the water that I give will never thirst. What does that mean? Well, here's the truth about being a human being. Everybody who lives on this earth is thirsty. Yes, in the physical sense, everybody needs to drink water or you will become dehydrated but in the eternal sense in our souls 
everybody is thirsty for something. Water is the stand-in for whatever it is that can make you fulfilled as a human. Everybody has a thirst for that emotion, that sensation, that feeling of being fulfilled. And when you don't know God, you have to come up with something yourself, something that might bring fulfillment. This is, this is the anthem of our time. Create your own purpose for your life and go get it. Be fulfilled with your career. Be fulfilled by having children. Be fulfilled with the pursuit of some kind of excellence. Whatever it is, the point is, we all have this urge for fulfillment, for satisfaction, for accomplishment. Maybe you have recently heard the name Anthony Bourdain. He died a little over a year ago. He was a world-famous chef, a celebrity chef. He was a wildly successful author. He made a career. He made a career out of sampling and tasting every fine thing that this world has to offer, especially food and drink. Every luxurious thing was there for him to pluck. He reached the pinnacle of his profession. Whatever he had a thirst for, it was within his grasp. And last June, he committed suicide. And this was, this was absolutely shocking to the people who knew and who loved Anthony Bourdain. He had it all. He had everything. Suicide seems to be far too common among thoughtful, successful, especially artists who attain everything that they've ever pursued. And you can understand how this happens. It's like the chase, the chase for excellence keeps you alive. Because there's this hope, there's this hope that you're clinging to that someday, after chasing all of these things, after attaining these things, you're going to have some sense of accomplishment, some sense of fulfillment. After you climb that mountain, finally you can say, I have done it. I can rest. But the problem is, after grasping everything that the world offers, after climbing every mountain, there inevitably is emptiness. There's a hole. There's a hole that cannot be filled. It can't be filled because... It's what some people call a God-shaped hole. Only God can satisfy it. When people have everything that can possibly be, be attained on this earth, anything that can be earned on this earth, they realize that they're still thirsty for something, something huge that they don't know, that they can't get to. Despair comes. And death is the only escape from that kind of thirst. But here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus, and he says, Let anyone, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. Anyone who believes in me, let him drink. Whoever drinks the water that Jesus gives will never be thirsty again. Jesus offers 
true satisfaction, true fulfillment. The thing is, we were designed, we were created not to be fulfilled with all of these earthly things. That thirst that we have, it's put there by design. God created us to yearn for him, to long for him. There's no better desire. And God promises that he satisfies our desires with his fellowship, with his communion, with his goodness. God fills us up with himself. There's no substitute for a true thirst for God. And he promises, this is God's promise for you. In Christ, you can be more fulfilled than any career can make you feel. It's, and it's not just a matter of having that pleasant feeling, a feeling of satisfaction. No, this is a matter of life and death. If you fail to come to Jesus and drink, you will eternally die of thirst. And, and we know this, right? We know that God must be our greatest desire. But we can still let ourselves thirst for the things in this world. It's so easy for us to do, to be tricked into, into this kind of thinking. We think that, you know, if only I had a certain job. If only I accomplished such and such. If if I can, if I can just, just you know, graduate from high school with that 4.0, if I can just accumulate enough in my retirement fund to be in such and such a place, well then, boy, I'll be sitting pretty good. Then I'll feel like I can rest. We have to resist that kind of thinking. I mean, these are good things. These are good pursuits. But... If these pursuits become the end in themselves, then we will remain thirsty. If we desire God most of all and put all of those good things into their earth, into their proper place where they are directed to the glory of God, well, then we have assurance from Christ. We have his promise that you will not experience unfulfilled longing. Your life is full in Jesus Christ, and your thirst is quenched. But Jesus guarantees something even, even richer than that. Not only will we be satisfied, not only will we survive when we drink his water, but his water will, will overflow, and it will change your nature. And that's our second point. This water flows from the believer. So part of the scripture reading this morning was from Ezekiel 47, and we haven't talked about that yet. How does that connect to Jesus' words in our text? That water coming from the temple. But what do we see there? Ezekiel saw a vision of the new temple, and there was water trickling out of it, and as, it, as the water came out of the temple, it grew wider and wider and deeper and deeper until it was this beautiful, cool, refreshing 
river that produced all kinds of life. Even in the most dead places on earth, places like the Dead Sea, if you've learned about the Dead Sea in school, you know that it's so full of salt. It's so full of salt that you can lay in that water and pile rocks on your stomach and you will not sink. There's so much salt in it. And there's so much salt that it's absolutely impossible for anything to, to grow there. Nothing can grow. But because of the water coming from the temple, life is springing out of the ground, even at the Dead Sea. Now, if we consider, as we saw already, that, number one, Christ is the one who gives this water. And if we consider also that Christ refers to himself as the new temple, well, then this kind of sounds like an extension of the first point. Christ is the one who gives life, and he really does it fully. But look at our text. What does it say there? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's different. So somehow, the people of God become a source of life in this world. How can that happen? Well, let's consider what we actually become when we are united to Christ. We are called temples of the Holy Spirit. We are temples. And as the church, all of us together are the body of Christ. God doesn't just visit us. God doesn't merely dwell among us. No, God dwells permanently inside his people. We are each one of us, but also his church, we have become the body of Christ. We are the new temple of God. And he dwells within us with his spirit. So what does that teach us about what we see in Ezekiel? Somehow life-giving water flows from us, from the temple of God, and it spreads life. We spread life in the world. That's a major thing. That's huge. That's a major reversal from how we are without Christ. That's a major reversal from what human beings look like, especially in the Old Testament. This is what Old Testament laws teach us. Without Christ, the only thing that we can spread is death and impurity, uncleanness. In the Old Testament, there were all these laws, right? A thousand ways to become unclean. You were contagious with death. But now, that's changed. Now we are contagious with life. Our new nature is that we infect the world with life. Instead of being defiled by the world, we spread life in the world. So we learn from this. That somehow... We have to have an effect on the world, on our community. Our contact with others should result in new life. And how does that happen? Well, number one, we have to see to it that the gospel goes out. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And we can be thankful. We can be thankful that by God's grace, we are able to be active in 
various missions. And this is something that we should be constant in prayer about. This work, this work that's being done. We can give ourselves to support this this new life in the world however we can. Praise God for this. But there's something even a little bit deeper that we have to consider. The fact that we have Christ's life-giving water, it means that our very nature has changed. It's not merely that we enjoy a new status as the people of God and, well, now we better try to drum up some enthusiasm for sharing this with the world. No, this love and concern for the lost, this desire to see God's renewing work spread in the world is part of our DNA. It's in our bones. It's in our nature. And we have to ask ourselves, how are we living up to our nature? Are we being what we are? What are we doing with the surplus of living water that Christ has promised? Because this is guaranteed in our text. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And not just spill over and be useless. No, wherever it flows new life happens. This is all the miraculous work of God, brothers and sisters, but it's clear. It's clear here that he intends to use each one of us to spread life. This doesn't mean that every single one of us is called to be an apologist or an author or a preacher or a teacher. God gives different tools, but it does mean that every single one of us, by our very nature, is a spreader of life somehow. We must be a blessing to the people that we come into contact with, both as individual believers, but especially as the church. We have been given living water. It's a genuine miracle a miracle that we believe in him, that we have life, that we live eternally. How amazed, is is this amazing to us? Is this amazing to us every time we, we actually get together for worship? Imagine that when you share the truth of this miracle with someone, and they believe and come to Christ and take a drink, that new life has happened, where there was only deadness before. The canons of Dort describe this as a miracle as awesome as creation itself. The fact that someone believes in Christ. It's a miracle as awesome and powerful as the resurrection of the dead. Are you eager to have that kind of effect on the world? Or are we happy and and comfortable how we are. If we're comfortable and, and not very interested in, in spreading life in the, in the world, then we have to be aware that this is against the new life-giving nature that we have in Christ. And if we find ourselves lacking in this, if we find ourselves lacking, well, then we are exhorted to pray. We're exhorted to ask our Father. 
to work in us with his spirit so that we realize what we have been given, that we might be overcome with thankfulness and that we might be eager to be put to use as instruments in God's hands. Briefly, we'll see a third aspect that this water is the spirit of Christ. John explains that Jesus was predicting Pentecost, the time when Christ would pour out his spirit on all believers. Now, we might have a little bit of difficulty with how this is worded here. In verse 39, we read, This he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now we know that the very act of believing in Christ is because of the softening of our hearts, which is only the Spirit's work, right? So how can people believe in Christ and then later receive the Holy Spirit? Well, congregation, yes, it's true. Nobody can, nobody can begin to believe in Christ. None of us can can muster up even, even the smallest whisper of faith without the powerful work of God's Spirit in our hearts. So those who believed in Christ, we have to understand we're already experiencing the, the influence, the softening of God in their hearts. But something greater is worked in believers after Pentecost. The fruit of the Holy Spirit blossoms in a way that, that couldn't blossom before. And it couldn't blossom in the world the way that it can now because our sin hadn't been dealt with yet. But Jesus had not yet secured the victory in history yet. Jesus had not yet been glorified. But now, he has paid for our sins. Atonement has been made because he ascended into heaven. Now he gives his Holy Spirit to his people in fullness. The Spirit of Christ is with us always. He is the source of life where there's only death before. And now we can see how this life is able to break out into the world. Sometimes that we think that's hard to see. We might have difficulty imagining that fact because sometimes we, you know, we take it as a given that, well, we are the people of God and in our, in our own lifetime so far, we haven't witnessed with our own eyes such an explosion of life. But consider what it took for you to become people of God, for you to be called God's people. When this gospel was written. All the life that had been sprouted so far was limited to this little area around the Mediterranean Sea. But it reached your grandparents. It reached you. You are now included in Christ. Think about that. How much life has the Spirit of Christ created to this day? So we consider the magnitude of the harvest that's growing right now, but also the fruit, the fruit of, in our own lives. 
We have been given the Spirit of Christ. He is the source of our faith, our belief. And we are also promised magnificent growth in His Spirit. And the fact that we enjoy the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the friendship of the Holy Spirit, this is a tremendous blessing. Sometimes you might wish that Jesus were sitting here physically, in person, with us right now. We might think, man, my faith would really be unshakable if I could just meet Jesus once. Once. If I could see, you know, one of the signs that he performed. If we could know him like his disciples did. Well, we have to understand that that is false. In the previous chapter in John, John chapter 6, we see that there was a band of disciples. He had a band of disciples that heard his wisdom with their own ears. They saw his miracles with their own eyes. They knew Jesus personally, and they deserted him because they didn't believe. But we have been given fellowship with Jesus Christ himself by his spirit, and that's really important for us to understand. The spirit who dwells in us is the spirit of Christ. And Jesus needed to depart from this earth in his body so he could give us his spirit in abundance. He can give us that fellowship with himself. We have his spirit. This is the only explanation for the fact that we are gathered here this morning. It's a miracle that we're alive. And not only do we have the guarantee of eternal life, but we also have the promise that the spirit who lives in us is equipping us to shine, equipping us to be beacons of the love of God in this world. There are still a lot of dead places on earth, dry places. And Jesus has promised that we, his church, his people, that we are vessels of his water. What an exciting thing to know. That God is busy in this world, and we are a big part of that. May it be our prayer and our commitment to do this work. Do the work that he has prepared and equipped us to do. And may we be ready to praise him and glorify him for quenching the thirst of the world. Amen.